The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. So welcome to episode 73. It's um, hot and steamy here, not as hot and steamy there, and uh, we've got a lot of stuff to get through, so let's go. Um, let's do it. What have you been driving? Uh, I spent the last week with the new Ford Expedition, which is the, the cheap version of uh, the Lincoln Navigator, uh, relatively speaking. Was it all blue? It was not all blue. <laughs> it was sort of a brown brownish gold color uh quite attractive actually especially in the uh the evening sunlight the sunset uh gave it a really gold hue to it and um this was actually the expedition max uh which is the the supersized version of the expedition which i think has a wheelbase of something like 130 inches uh which is almost as long as the uh, Echo Sport I was driving last week uh, from bumper to bumper. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's crazy to think that cars used to be that size. Like, I mean, big cars like Packards oh, and yeah. stuff, but like the 130 inch yeah, wheelbase. But, but the, the funny, the fun, you know, the funny thing is, you know, they, the old cars were big like that, but they, you know, they had really small cabins. So you'd have like six feet of trunk and eight feet of hood and then a little cabin in the middle. Uh, you know, so they were oftentimes were actually not really all that roomy inside. That's true. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this definitely not that way. The expedition no. is big, especially no, the extra this, long one. Yeah. So, yeah. So this, this is the, the long wheelbase, so, you know, just like the navigator, they have it in two wheelbase lengths, a shorter and a long wheelbase. Um, and it's a three row. And unlike the, the GM, uh, full size SUV, at least the current generation of the GM, uh, full size utilities, um, for the last decade, Ford has had uh, independent rear suspensions on the, the Expedition and Navigator, which means that they have a much lower floor in the back for the third row. So they're actually usable for adults. You know, like I'm 5'11", and I can sit fairly comfortably in the third row of the Navigator or of, of the Expedition. They had a Navigator, too. Yeah, but, either either uh, or. <laughs> yeah. I mean, me mechanically, they're, they're the same vehicle. But, you know, when you put them side by side, they don't look alike. And when you sit in them, you know, there's there's no parts, none of the visible parts, nothing that you touch or see is common between the two. So, you know, it's all, all the switch gear and everything is unique. You know, the, the hardware that it's controlling 
you know, the stuff that you don't see is the same, but all the switch gear is, is unique to each one. So they, they look more distinct than they ever have in the past, which is a good thing. You know, when you're paying, you know, an extra 20 grand for uh, the Lincoln, you know, you want to know you're getting something for your money. Uh, in this case, you know, this was the a navigator or an expert. <laughs> keep getting keep doing it, huh? The, the Expedition Max um, Platinum Edition, uh, four wheel drive. <clears throat> base price is 78500 Hundred uh, as equipped, the one I had was eighty one thousand six hundred dollars, which you know seems like a lot of money, and, and it is. Uh, but you know, I think the when I had the Navigator, it was the standard length Navigator, and that thing was about a hundred grand. So it was, you know, it was about twenty grand more. Yeah, but that's still like that's Lincoln money. Like that, I mean, that that's big cash for uh, an expedition. Uh, even though, like, I'm sure it's luxurious and, and nice and, and capable and all of those things. But that's the highest I've ever heard one of the like, the expedition uh, being priced at. It, it is. But you know what? They're selling more of them than they ever have. Well, and they're better <laughs> yeah. than they've ever been. I'm, uh, I mean, yeah. that's that's true. But, you know, I mean, the. Uh, you know, and this, you know, this one has, you know, some of the features that you'll find in the in the Lincoln, you know, so you've got um, I can't remember does the Lincoln does the panoramic moonroof and the Lincoln extend back over the third seat as well or just over the first two rows? I think it's just over the first two rows. OK, so this one this one's got the same thing. It's got that panoramic moonroof um, in the back. Uh, you know, it's got power. Um, for, for, there's switches in the, the rear of the cargo compartment on the side so that, you know, if you're loading stuff in the back and you want to drop the seats down, you don't have to walk around to the side to drop the second row seats. You can just press the button and the second row seats um, flip down automatically. And, and you can do one side or the other independently. You know, so if you've got something long, you want to put down just down one side, you can do that. And you can motor the, uh, the third row seats down as well. So you have this nice long cargo flat cargo area um they've got their their cargo management system in there which is basically sort of a little reconfigurable shelf you know in the back of the cargo area you know so you can just have it flat you know extend all the way a flat surface from the bumper all the way to the back of the front seats or you you know if you've got people in the seating positions and you want to have you know things that different level, you know, stack things up in the cargo area. You can pop up this little shelf and have things below and things above, you know, so there's all kinds of reconfigurability to this thing. Um, you know, the, the one, the platinum I had has the second row captain's chairs. Uh, so there's a pat, a, wa a pass through, a walk through, you know, so there's only two seats in the second row. Uh, so you can only carry a mere seven people in this one. Uh, but you can also get it with a bench seat in the in the second row. You don't get things like the uh, like the really um, fancy you know like controls of all the infotainment system that you get in the Lincoln uh, for the second row and, and all that stuff. But there's USB ports and power everywhere at all the seating positions, or at least all the exterior seating positions. Um, plenty of leg room, plenty of headroom. Um, you know, and this thing can can tow and haul is pretty much as much as you need to. You know, if you need anything, you know, I, I think it's you know uh, up to about ten thousand pounds that you can tow with this thing, with the uh, the EcoBoost engine that's in here. Um, and, you know, it can basically go, you know, just about anywhere you can fit it. Uh, so, like, that, yeah, that was my and I'm I'm driving a navigator again this week, so we'll get to that. Uh, but then my take on it is that actually stripping away a bunch of the Lincoln stuff might actually make it 
uh, I don't know, more straightforward to use, I suppose, in a way, or just I, I might have enjoyed it more trying the expedition versus the, the navigator, which is, is definitely teched up and has a lot of features, but those sometimes can get in the way of just sort of driving and operating the vehicle. Uh, so I, I can see the, the sort of the case for the Ford at 80 something thousand versus <laughs> the Lincoln at a hundred. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, you know, the amenities, you know, that you get in here are actually, you know, you get a lot of the same stuff you get in the Lincoln. Um, you know, like I said, you know, like those remote folding seats that I mentioned. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's got the Sync 3 system in there, you know, which is basically the same system you get in the Lincoln, but just, you know, skinned a little bit, you know, diff different color, you know, different theme, different color theme on the, the interface. But it's essentially the same interface um, instead of the, you know, kind of piano key switches for the, the shifter. You get the rotary control knob like you have in the new Fusion and, and some of the other uh, current Fords. Um, you know, so it's, you know, in some, some respects, it's slightly simplified. There's not as much of the, the really rich wood trim in there, but, you know, you have leather everywhere. And, and the, I actually, the wood trim that is in there on the center console, I actually personally prefer, um, you know, because it's, it's an open grain wood, you know, instead of the really high gloss wood. Uh, so it, um, to, to my taste, I, I prefer that look, you know, so it's more of a matte finish as opposed to the, you know, something that looks like there's a layer of glass on top of the wood veneer. Yeah. Um, and so that's, the, you know, but that that's a matter of personal preference. I think on the Lincoln, you know, there's some options where you can get a similar type of wood finish. Uh, but, you know, so it doesn't look quite, you know, quite as luxurious as the Lincoln, but, you know, functionally, it's about the same. Yeah. And that's where the charm of the expedition lies you know it's, it's got a powerful engine it can do a lot of stuff you know it's a heavy heavy duty vehicle uh and it it really fills that role um quite well so uh what were you getting fuel economy wise <laughs> Uh, not much yeah. <laughs> it was <laughs> it was about 18 miles per gallon oh, that's but it not was, bad yeah, it was like between 17 and 18, you know, and it was mostly around town driving. I didn't take any longer trips with the expedition this week. I didn't really go anywhere. Um, you know, we had the 4th of July in the middle of this week and, you know, uh, we just went out to the lake a couple of times. Uh, so I didn't go any, any longer distances and didn't have any meetings to go to. Uh, so, you know, it, it, I think, you know, with highway driving, you know, I saw a friend of mine who has an expedition who's just getting ready for a road trip this weekend with his, with his family uh, saying he's he's been getting 22, um, you know, on the highway. So, you know, I think that's if, if you baby it, you know, that's it's not bad. You know, you can you that, can manage yeah, that. That sounds really high. Um, yeah. For that. That combo. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, the, the towing capacity on the, the navigator on the expedition is 9,300 pounds, um, 104 cubic feet of cargo space behind the front row, uh, you know, which is pretty much big enough, I think, to swallow up an Echo Sport. Yeah, I mean, that's an entire, I th let's see, 100 cubic feet. That's an entire Accord interior. Yeah. You know, for, for reference, a Tesla Model S, which is by many people considered a large car uh, and technically the way the regulations are, it's classified as a large car, has 94 cubic feet of passenger space 
This has 104 cubic feet of cargo space when you fold the, the second and third row seats down. And then you still have space for a couple of passengers up front. That's it's not bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the thing, too. There's always that, like, uh, commentary at uh, pointing out how ridiculous these big SUVs are. And, yeah, if you're going to use it the same way as you would like a Prius C, I agree. It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, it makes no sense. But, but you know, if, if, you, if you have to tow a trailer and you've got, you know, five or six kids or you regularly carry large groups of people, then a vehicle like this makes sense. You know, and, you know, if you start looking at it from... You know, in terms of the utility, you know, if you're actually using the capabilities it has, it makes perfect sense. If you're driving it around solo as the only person in this vehicle or just one other person, it's ridiculous to drive a vehicle like this. Other than the fact that you feel like you can crush things. True. <laughs> uh, but uh, but, you know, what one of the things that the expedition has and the, the navigator has it as well. You know, I mean, there's, there's some really neat features that they put into these new utilities like the, uh, the pro trailer backup assist. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to sample that, but it's, it's actually really cool. I didn't use it this week, but I did try it out uh, last summer at a demo that Ford was doing. And um, when you're, when you're using, uh, if you're towing a trailer, you know, one of the, you know, especially like, you know, if you've got a boat, if you've got to back up the trail, back up with the trailer hooked up, it can be really nerve wracking if you're not used to it. Yeah. And, you know, so they have this pro trailer backup assist system, you know, and you can set it up for, I think, up to about four or five different trailers. You know, so if for whatever reason you have multiple different trailers that you tow at various times, you can have multiple settings in there for each one. But basically, you know, when you set it up, it uses the rear backup camera um, to uh, to. Uh, See, you, you put a uh, like a, a grid sticker on the trailer itself and you calibrate it with the, the backup camera. So then it can measure the angle of the trailer. And then, you know, it, it basically there's a there's a knob on the dashboard that you put it in reverse, engage the pro trailer backup assist. And then you can basically steer it with this knob you know, to where you want to go and it will actually handle the steering. The, you know, the, it, the system actually uh, takes control of the steering actuator. So you just twist the knob for, uh, to where you want to go. And uh, then the system takes care of the rest. And so if you need to back up, you know, down a boat ramp to put your boat in the water or uh, things like that, it makes it so much easier to do. Uh, you know, and it, it's just it, it's also a lot safer than especially if you're inexperienced. If you do it all the time, you get used to it and you know how to maneuver a trailer. But if it's something you only do a couple of times a year, you know, in the spring or the fall when you're <laughs> loading your boat into the lake or taking it out, uh, then it, it can be a pretty harrowing experience. So s features like that make it a lot easier. Now, you know, granted, a lot of people, not a lot of people, you know, need to do that on a regular basis. Well, that's the but thing, though. It's like it's because you don't need to do it on a regular basis. And it's really not that big of a cost for them to add that feature. And they can put it into some kind of tech package because Ford does that. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, the rapid spec packages is, is generally how they, they equip the cars. 
uh, you know, it's bundled with a bunch of other stuff that people do want. So it's it's there when you need it. And it's yeah, you know, and the, the hardware is all there for other features anyway. Things like, you know, you've got uh, for the active park assist and the, the lane keeping system. You've got, you know, your steering control. You've got the, the various sensors uh, and the the backup camera are all there on the vehicle anyway. So it's it's a matter of adding some extra software and you know the only additional piece of hardware is just the the control knob on the dashboard yeah which i kept hitting uh as the, <laughs> um the start when you were trying on. to shift no it's just to oh. start it you know because it's in the exact spot that the uh you'd expect oh. the push button to be for starting yeah. and stopping um at least on the navigator um, yeah, so, it is on the uh, on the expedition too. It's to the lower left of the the touch screen. Yeah, and that, like so, there's still some of that like Ford ergonomic weirdness um, around both of these, and and I, like I don't know that that's ever going to really be solved. I think it's just you know they they put stuff where they had space for it, or you know the trailer knob control team got in a you know cage match with the start push button team and they all had to duke it out well, for real you know, estate and, and this is this is one <laughs> of the reasons why you know some manufacturers have gone to more touch interfaces you know so that you don't because you know with all these different features on there trying to find a place for all the the physical controls is a problem but you know conversely you know as people have tried to use the touch interfaces or other interfaces they found that they hate them so you know they've gone they're kind of going back and forth and they're trying to find the right balance between the two yeah yeah I've, I've, they've, they've definitely got the balance more right than wrong so yeah yeah um at least it's got rotary volume and tuning knobs that is true that and is true. and also for the climate control uh oh for the climate too that's that's nice i well yeah i i think the navigator did i i can't remember i'm not in it at the moment so it's just they all after a certain point they all blend together and i <laughs> i wound up putting miles on the crown victoria today so um i, I went old school Oh, <laughs> I that, love that. that is old school. Just, just the groan. <laughs> it had gas in it. <laughs> I didn't didn't want to fill up the navigator. Um, but yeah, so I, I mean, I think we we went over kind of the last time I had the navigator, my main thoughts with it, uh, which sort of mirror your thoughts about the expedition. Just add a like a, a layer of, of glitz uh, this time around. It's not the all blue one. It's the it, I, this one has it's a tan gold brown kind of exterior color and a you know just a much sort of more normal tan interior with uh like darker piping and it's it's lovely ford really did it i don't i don't know that i fully appreciated it with the the blue interior because it was so unnatural mm -hmm. but the they did a really good job on materials and fit and finish and you know the the inside of the navigators is quite nice Oh yeah, it is. And I, I'm just looking at my photos of the, the navigator interior and the, for the climate controls on the navigator, instead of the rotary knobs, they have the rocker switches. So oh, okay. it's, um, Oh, that's the, right. They're the blue and red. Yeah. 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 So where, where the Ford has the, um, the, the touchscreen embedded in the dashboard, and then it's got the, uh, the audio controls directly below that. And then the climate controls below that with rotary knobs, uh, all in this this vertical stack. The expedition has, or the navigator, the Lincoln has the the stand up display on top of the dash. You know the tablet style display, uh, and then uh, there's a an, an angled 
panel below that below the transmission switches and that's where you have the climate controls and the the volume and tuning knobs and for the the for the temperature control you've got a pair of rocker switches that you can flip up or down to go hotter or cooler uh, instead of a rotary knob that you that you that you uh, twist so it's it's still a physical control which is a good thing it's just a little bit different you know to distinguish it you know from the and to make it unique from the Ford. It sounds like I would probably like the Ford better for its ergonomic layout. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think among big SUVs, this pair, you know, the, the Expedition and the Navigator are really well done. Um, probably better than just about, I mean, I, the, its most direct competitor, obviously, is the, um, the, like the Tahoe and the Suburban. Um, yeah. And the, you know, the, and the Escalade. Right, and the Escalade. Um, but there's also, and, and those are going to be all new next year. So, you know, next yeah. year is when things are going to get interesting from a competitive perspective, because, you know, you're going to have new GM utilities, um, and then, uh, FCA is also going to probably bring something out as well. They're going to have some large utilities added to their lineup. Yeah. And don't forget the ones like the Armada and the QX 80 and, uh, I, I mean, I guess there's still the Sequoia, but that's not really a play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the Sequoia is the Sequoia is by far and away the oldest of the bunch now, and it's true you know, to its it, name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Presumably, at some point, you know, Toyota will will revamp the Tundra and and bring a new Sequoia as well. Um, you know, the the Armada and the QX80 from from Nissan. Uh, you know, those. You know, I think certainly. You know, you have a lot of the luxury. They're not quite as gargantuan though as the uh the, the lincoln's the ford and lincoln and and the gm uh utilities you know i think they're they're quite a bit shorter you know so they're still three they still have three rows of seating but you know they don't stretch you know the half the length of a football field it seems like yeah that's that's true um you know i i guess this is still a segment where there's there's money to be made. So, uh, you know, oh, and a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, I mean, lot you know, of margin. <laughs> you, you know, even if you're only selling, you know, 60 or 70,000 of these a year, you know, there's a huge profit margin on these, which is why they keep building them. Yeah. Because underneath it all, it's really just an F series. <laughs> yep, Mostly. Um, so the other thing I had um, last week before the, the new Navigator uh, um, was a Mazda CX-9. So I, I think what's going on is, do you remember, I, this is a couple of shows ago now, you, you had the Outlander. And yeah. uh, we talked about how it's sort of got something unique with its three rows and that sort of size. I think what's going on is the, the universe is saying, well, actually, Dan. Because <laughs> <laughs> since then, I've had the Sorento, which and the... Uh, the CX-9, which are both a little bit larger but than that Outlander, but they also both sort of pack a surprise third row that you don't always necessarily think of when you think of, of uh, that particular size class of, of vehicles. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've gotten to try out, uh, <laughs> I think, everything but the Outlander um, recently. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I mean, the Mazda CX-9 is you know it's it's pretty pretty nice to drive i'm not sure it's the most competitive vehicle in its in its segment you know i think you you give up a little bit of uh cargo space and um you know overall just value for the uh that size class you know there's you know the sorrento for example had a v6 
Mm-hmm. The CX-9 does not. Right, it's got a Turbo 4. Which, which feels pretty lively, but it also, you know, when you really call up for full steam ahead, it feels a little bit taxed. So it's like, oh, that's all there is. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, but it, it does have a really nice interior. It and, does, you know, yeah. and and the exterior styling is really sharp. And oh, it's, it's a beautiful vehicle. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. It's easy to operate. It it surprised me because it has more body roll than you'd think uh, it might have, but and, but that actually helps you enjoy driving it because it it I, I guess it's that like driver car symbiosis thing i'm sure there's a word for it that mazda has too some some japanese word but uh you know you can go into a turn without really overdoing it and you'll you'll get some of that feeling like hey i'm really driving here mm-hmm. and and it's a good chassis you know it's pretty stiff and you, know, you get feedback through the wheel and the controls it's it's set up well even though it is a three-row crossover uh, it still feels pretty good to drive except for that power deficit thing <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then I got to say, like, honestly, the, the four cylinder, it's fine pretty much all the time. It's just, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I think I think most people will not really you know take issue with the, the performance of it. Yeah. And at, at some point, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, at some point in the next couple of years, we see uh, a variation of it, you know, that perhaps has um, a mild hybrid system on it, you know, to give it a little more. Uh, oh, torque yeah, boost. Yeah. Yep. yeah. If you if you threw a 48 volt mild hybrid on there, uh, you know, that would give it, you know, some torque boost for those times, you know, when, you know, when you want to do a merge onto a highway and you need a, that little bit of extra oomph, you know, just to get you up to 75. Uh, and, you know, that that'll help you for those short bursts, you know, and then when you're when you're cruising along, you don't really need it. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, I mean, that's a really viable way to do it these days instead of carting around a big engine uh, all the time. You know, I think that's as we continue to see the need for fuel economy, especially if the price of fuel spikes even, even higher, uh, there's going to still be that desire for these vehicles, but also, you know, the performance. So it's a balancing like the performance, the uh, demand and the actual efficiency. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I think we're at a point now where we weren't 10 years ago, where, you know, it's easier to add mild hybrid systems and, you know, even more traditional hybrid, you know, more complex hybrids to a lot of different vehicles and, and really get us that performance and economy, you know, fuel efficiency that we're we're going to need. So, uh, you know, and, and and actually Mazda will will be bringing some strong hybrids to market, too. I don't know if they'll put one in the CX-9, but they, they may well. Um because they're they're working with Toyota, you know they've got their partnership with Toyota. Toyota took a, I think a fifteen or twenty percent stake in Mazda, and and Mazda owns a few percent of Toyota's stock. So they're partnering on a lot of future powertrain stuff, uh, among other things. And so we may well see uh, the Toyota hybrid system land in vehicles like the CX nine in the next few years. Yeah, and like I I don't see how that could be a bad thing <laughs> yeah i mean well you've, you've driven the highlander hybrid right uh yeah probably i haven't been in a yeah. highlander in a while or yeah i mean certainly like the, the, you know the camry just, you yeah. know it's the same basic system you know they just scale it up or down a little bit for each vehicle um the camry you know, the last camry hybrid i drove was excellent yeah, you know, so that's that's a really good system. Uh, so, you know, if you were to add that with, you know, Mazda's driving dynamics, it, it, I think it would be a really good combination. 
I can't. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't complain about that. Um, you know, the only honestly, the only real complaints I had was just sort of getting in and out of the third row uh, was a little tough in the yeah. CX nine, just because the you know it's not all that big, and the the second row seats don't really kind of get out of the way. Um, and that's that's really a problem with all of these kind of upper midsize utilities you know they're the third row is really more very much more of an occasional thing you know if you if you really need a third row all the time you need to go to one of the bigger utilities you know like uh, a tahoe or not 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 necessarily a tahoe um but you know like a chevy traverse or yeah. you know an explorer or, or one of those or vehicles. A van. yeah or a van yeah, yeah. um and, and you know the other the other wrinkle i think and this is just us being um, you know, guys who spend a week in a car versus somebody who owns it is the the Mazda sort of infotainment interface. Uh, you get you get used to it, but it it felt like a little bit clunky. Um, and I don't know I don't know why because generally in the past I've liked it, so uh, that that's probably just a fluke. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the current interface they've had in their cars for several years now, you know, I think it's better than a lot of them. Um, it, it can be a, a little slow sometimes, uh, but I think next year or maybe later this year, they're going to be adding uh, CarPlay and Android Auto support to that as well. And I'm not sure if that's going to be available as a software update on some of the current cars. I think some of the 2018 and 2019 models will have it. We'll be able to get a software update. Some of the older ones will not. Well, yeah. And so you're just going to have to trade it in and get a new one. That's right. Support <laughs> the economy. That's bye, right. bye, bye. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, like three row crossovers. I mean, who knew that there was such uh, such a variety? And it, it definitely feels sporty uh, to drive. So that's nice that that, that Mazda thing is still in in like everything they make. Um, one thing I noticed on both the CX-9 and the Navigator, which seemed weird to me, was like, do you ever just like open the door and look at the the quality of like paint and and finish around uh, around that that area that's generally covered by the doors, just like the the door jams and stuff? Mm -hmm. um, it, it seems like, especially the Lincoln, I was like, it almost looks like they decided to make that a Class A surface. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like super I, smooth I, and perfect. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they did, in fact, do that. Really, uh, especially especially on the Lincoln, um, you know, because they're they're trying. You know, Lincoln, you know, has really been trying to you know, hit all those details. You know, they're trying to make you know for their customers they they don't want them to notice any little flaws. You know, they they want it they want it, they want to get everything as as perfect as they can within you know within reason huh so it wouldn't surprise me if they did in fact do that well it's noticeable it's like noticeably great finish inside i was like wow that looks really really good it's just it's as as good as the outside finish which is good uh it looks it's a good looking vehicle on the outside and it's you know well well sort of put together at least brand new off the showroom floor yeah as we see them um yeah it, i guess the navigator kind of won me over the second time around I, I like it better than I did. So it came to terms with the seats and yeah. So <laughs> if you, with those 30 way uh, power adjustable seats, you found a position that works for you. Yeah. I got more comfortable this time than the last time. So, okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's, let's get into some stuff. Uh, Cause we have the, the few things to talk about. 
Um, we'll just start at the top of the list because it's A, and that's alphabetical. Okay. Um, so Audi e-tron uh, has uh, the the has virtual side mirrors. I guess they're called. Yeah. So yeah. the the e-tron Quattro is Audi's first pure battery electric vehicle that's coming out. Uh, it's coming. It's you know, going to go on sale this fall. Uh, I guess they're they're going to do the the official global debut in September in San Francisco. Um, it, it was originally scheduled to happen in Europe, uh, but apparently uh, with the with uh, their current uh, or most recent CEO uh, currently sitting in a ger- <laughs> German jail cell, yeah. they decided to move it to the U.S., um, which, actually, you know, all things considered is probably probably a wise decision from a marketing standpoint anyway, because, you know, California is going to be a prime market for this thing. Uh, you know, so this is a you know, this is a crossover. Um, you know, I guess from what I understand, it's kind of sized kind of midway in between a Q5 and a Q7. Um, so sort of a, a midsize, you know, upper midsize crossover, you know, it's probably similar in size to the CX-9. Um and it's a battery electric and it's on a new electric platform, uh, which it's actually um, believe this is uh, this may or may not be the same platform that they're using for the, the Porsche Taycan, Taycan, whatever the hell, however you pronounce that. Taycan. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's uh, it's going to have a, a 95 kilowatt hour battery pack, all wheel drive, dual motor, all wheel drive, uh, just like a certain other uh, electric crossover, luxury electric crossover that you can get. Um, and uh, one of the one of the you know they've been teasing out you know over the last few months a variety of the the features that are going to be on this thing, and one of those features um, is not Falcon wing doors, but um, something that would actually be have you know, have an actual useful benefit, which is these virtual side mirrors or, or camera mirrors. You know, one of the, you know, when you're trying to reduce the aerodynamic drag of a vehicle, one of the big issues is, you know, those big mirrors you got hanging off the side of the body. You know, they, they can produce a fair amount of drag and wind noise. And, you know, manufacturers have been working on, uh, you know, for years they've had concept cars that used cameras, you know, on the side, you know, to act as mirrors. But now, the uh, the e-tron will be the first production model that actually offers this, at least as an option in markets where it's legal, which is one of the issues uh, right now in the U.S. These things are not legal, <laughs> but uh, hopefully, you know, can get uh, NHTSA to change those rules uh, to allow them to be legal because it, it you know, has a significant benefit both aerodynamically, but also functionally. Yeah, I mean, I get the idea of the benefits i just i just hate more screens man like and i just i'm thinking about the honda you know lane watch or whatever the hell it was called where you mm-hmm. tap the blinker and it would flip this video screen on and distract you and like i i don't i don't know i'm not sure that i see the same thing in a, a video screen that i do in just a prismatic mirror you know so well, you know, in, in this case, you know, the lane watch, you know, it would the lane watch system. You had the camera mounted on the passenger side mirror. And when you turn on the right turn signal, 
it would uh, switch the, the center display over to displaying the view from that camera, which means, you know, it was changing modes. And, you know, you're right, it was kind of a distraction. <clears throat> In this case, with the Audi and with other some other prototypes I've seen from other other companies, uh, last year I saw uh, a Magna, a prototype vehicle that Magna was showing with their system. And I'm not sure if Magna is the supplier for Audi on this one or not, but... Um, what they've done is they've embedded a pair of smaller displays uh, on the, the door panels. So on the ends of the IP, close to where the the view where your outside mirrors would normally be. And so these things will be on all the time. So effectively, what you're doing is you're moving the mirrors from the outside of the car to the inside. So it's not like it's. I don't think it's any more of a distraction than having a mirror that would be there. You know, it's, it's just there, you know, when you glance over, just as you glance over at your mirror and when you hope, hopefully you glance over at your mirror when you're making lane changes. Oh, you, is that what you're supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, some, some, sometimes that, that happens. I mean, I don't know with um, an Audi, you know, I think you just go and like people just well, get out of your way because you have an Audi. Well, okay. Well, there, there is that. So <laughs> in theory, at least, you know, you're supposed to glance over at your mirrors, you know, and then glance over your shoulder uh, to check blind spots before you switch lanes. And, you know, these are you know going to be close to the same position as where your mirrors would be just slightly more inboard. Um, you know, so it's like looking at your mirror, uh, you know, and it's just got that view there all the time. The I think one of the big advantages besides the aerodynamics from a safety perspective, you know, a lot of people. Uh, don't set up their mirrors properly. They don't have them positioned to give them the best possible view of what's outside. And, you know, depending on where your where your sitting seating position is, you know, if you're depending on how tall you are, um, you know, if you're if you're moving your seat up or down or forward or back, you you have to position the mirrors. You have to set the mirrors to give you the right view outside with a camera system the cameras are always in the right position they're set from the factory to give you the optimal view so you should always have the right view no matter what your seating position is um you know because you're just looking at the screen and getting that view from the camera and i think i think that's a much better a much safer solution i think for most people how how do they propose it's going to work at night? Is it going to be another backlit screen to mess with your night vision? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I, I really don't know. It probably will be. Yes. Great. Can hardly yeah. wait for our. Well, um, I mean, you, you know, know the I, car's driving itself, I, I, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I, I suspect <laughs> that they will dim it. You know, so it'll it'll probably be, you know, like your phone, you know, there'll probably be an ambient light detector so that at night, you know, it reduces the the illumination. Uh, so it's not it's not nearly as bright, uh, you know, and then in the daytime, you know, in bright sunlight, it'll crank up the crank up the brightness of the screens so that, you know, you can you can always see what's there. At least I hope so. I hope yeah. that's the case. I mean, I'd be I'd be interested to try it out. I may, you know, I, I do think that it's useful to show you know, because you can get that wider angle of view with a camera lens than you can with a, a mirror. General, I mean, you can only do so much even with concave or convex mirrors. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that can be helpful. You can help people see into the blind spot that way. So, well, you know, and especially on a lot of cars, you know, on cars, especially a lot of times, you know, not so much on utilities and trucks, you know, that where they, they tend to use larger mirror housings, but on a lot of cars, like, you know, the Mustang that I just got delivered today, the Mustang actually has very small mirrors. Yeah. You know, well, so it's just out in front of everything though. Like, <laughs> well, 
<laughs> there is that. But, you know, I mean, a lot of a lot of performance cars, for example, and a lot of smaller cars have very small mirrors. And so getting a good view, you know, in, in those mirrors is is challenging. So, uh, you know, I think if you have a virtual mirror system like this, I think I think that's a that's definitely a benefit. Yeah. I mean, yeah, look, I mean, we have to keep you know, trying new. I mean, there, there's there's so. there, you know, obviously, you know, there's certain issues, like you said, you know, with the nighttime illumination and things like that. Um, you know, but I think overall, I think it's a net positive. All but right. We'll see. We'll, uh, we'll see when we get a chance to try it. Hopefully, you know, later this fall. I do think by shrinking the housings, the like right there, that's that's probably a significant uh, fuel economy benefit. Oh, absolutely. So, and, you know, especially on a on a battery electric, you know, where you want to reduce the drag as much as possible. You want to get rid of parasitic losses, you know, switching to that type of system, you know, getting rid of that mirror, those mirrors on the outside. That has a that has a significant difference. Yeah. And I guess I should stop calling it fuel economy when you're <laughs> talking about Ener- a battery energy, electric. energy efficiency. It's, although it is. I mean, it's 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 got to be fossil fuel, yeah. you know. It, well, not it, necessarily. It, it could be solar or it could it be wind. Can be fossil fuel, depending on where you charge. <laughs> yes. I, the, the thoughts were coming out before the brain could feel them back. This is why I write. I don't talk. That's <laughs> um all right. You have a chance to edit before you yeah. Uh, publish? Yeah, that's okay. We'll just let that one go. Um so yeah. Oh, wait, do you do you edit? Uh, occasionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> um next topic i wait for the emails to come in and correct me yeah because sometimes i just do that when you're like i just got to get the post up you put the post up and it's you know ready fire aim yeah Uh, um so our next topic is uh tariffs and price increases because that happened yeah so you know as of as we're recording this today on friday uh tariff uh, you know the the trade war is officially on um and tariffs have gone into effect on a whole bunch of products you know and retaliatory tariffs um you know from china and you know uh for for the europeans and canadians uh so prices are going to be going up on a whole bunch of stuff um especially cars uh in the in the next few weeks and months uh unless this gets resolved fairly quickly, which I suspect it probably won't. Um, So, you know, if you're planning to buy a car that's got, uh, um, well, actually pretty much any vehicle, uh, you know, car, truck or or utility, um, in the coming months, you'll probably be paying significantly more and we'll probably see car sales, vehicle sales go down in the second half of 2018. And uh, we'll probably start seeing some layoffs. And, you know, BMW has said that uh, they're going to be raising prices um, on their utilities, you know, because right now their Spartanburg plant in South Carolina is their single largest plant in their entire system in the world. Right. And, you know, they build all of the uh, X3s, X4s, X5, X6s, and the upcoming X7 uh, at, uh, at the Spartanburg plant. And they export more than 100,000 of those a year from Spartanburg uh, just to China. Uh, they, I think their total exports from Spartanburg are about a quarter million and a hundred thousand of the year, a hundred thousand a year go just to China. Uh, and those, the prices on those are going to go up by 25% in China because, you know, part of the, the retaliatory tariffs from, from China was 25% on, on us made vehicles. Um, so, um, in all likelihood, um, 
BMW will probably end up cutting production due to slowing sales and laying off some people from their Spartanburg, South Carolina plant. So um, it's also though, like does BMW have the ability with other manufacturing locations to, to pull the products that they're making in Spartanburg or some of them is shifted. To they, plant? Yeah. I mean, they, they could shift production, but you know, that's going to, that's something that's going to take some time um, because, you know, right now, you know, the Spartanburg plant, you know, they, except for the X one and the X two, all of BMW's other utilities are built in Spartanburg for the global market for Europe and South America and Africa and the Middle East. You know, they, they all come from Spartanburg. So the X one and X two are the only ones that are made in Europe. Um, and, you know, so the other plants are not set up to build those vehicles. You know, if this goes on for any length of time, I wouldn't be surprised to see BMW shift some of that production overseas, uh, you know, in order to avoid the tariffs. But, you know, that's a that's a process that's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. So uh, short term pain. And I like you, I don't. Uh I don't know that the tariff and the situation and trade war thing are going to work out quick. Now, I may be wrong because there is some of that uh, idea that, um, you know, the cultures are different and taking a really hard line with uh, in negotiations with other cultures actually tends to to sometimes be a more effective tactic. I don't I don't know how true that is. Um, I guess we'll see. <laughs> in, some, in some cases, I think it probably is true. You know, in the case of vehicles built in North America and exported to China, um, you know, I think the Chinese would just as soon not see any of those vehicles be imported from the U.S. anyway. I think they would just as soon have those built locally. Um, and, you know, if if anything, you know, if anything does change, that's probably what will happen is we'll probably see some of that production shift to China um, or at least back to Germany, but certainly to China, um, you know, and have them produced locally for that market, because that's, you know, that's that's still a growing market uh, as opposed to North America, you know, which is kind of flattened out in the past couple of years and, and is likely to stay that way over the next several years, you know, or at least over the next decade. There, you know, even before this, you know, there wasn't all, we weren't projecting a whole lot of uh, volume growth in North America over the next five to 10 years. Uh, so, you know, China, on the other hand, is still a growing market and it would, it would make sense if you're going to shift production anywhere, it would make sense to shift it to China. Yeah. Well also, yeah, I mean, America's uh, the North American market's not growing, but it's also like it's been at what seventeen million cars for the last couple of years. Like uh, that's yeah. I mean, it's actually you know declined a little bit last year and the year before. Uh, you know, from its peak three years ago of seventeen four seventeen five, you know, dropped to about seventeen last year, and you know will probably be somewhere around there this year. So I mean, it's still a good market, but it's just it's not a growing market. And, you know, for for vehicles like like those utilities, you know, where the, there's even more growth in China than there is here. You know, I would expect that we'll see some of that production shift over there if this goes on for any length of time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think the, the North American market are the only place it has to go right now is down, even if we didn't have a tariff situation. <laughs> um, yeah. There's just a lot of other uh, pressures, you know, happening. And uh, yeah, I mean, cars are cars are an expensive thing. And 
I I don't know that uh, I I don't know that making them more expensive is going to help anybody. <laughs> no, uh, but but you know on the other hand you know we're seeing you know companies you know trying to address the affordability issue in other ways like you know like obviously Waymo you know with their autonomous vehicles and and GM. Uh, you know, uh, GM's preparing to launch their autonomous ride hailing service um, probably sometime in the first half of next year. They've said they're going to do it in 2019. Um, and they haven't said where, but it will almost certainly, you know, San Francisco will almost certainly be the first market uh, just because that's where they've been doing the bulk of their testing with their, their system, with their autonomous Chevy Bolt. And uh, Bloomberg reported this week that they're they're starting to put the pieces in place over there. Um, apparently, they installed uh, 18 DC fast chargers in a parking garage uh, near the Embarcadero in San Francisco in recent weeks. And... Um, you know, so those are those are for, you know, for GM's uh, cruise fleet to operate in that area. You know, it's a fairly heavily trafficked area in San Francisco. Um, and that's that'll probably be one of the, the prime locations for this service to operate. So this is basically GM doing what we we had speculated was actually probably easy for them to do mm-hmm. at some point. Anyways, just basically they're building their own Uber. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, I mean they've they've been they've been doing that for more than a year. Um, you know, for for about a year now, they've been testing their own ride hailing platform uh, internally with crews and GM employees in San Francisco. So you know they have an app. You know, I've seen when I was out there at the end of November to ride in their vehicle. I saw the app. I saw the their back end system running their their dispatch system. Uh, you know, and you know the app is similar to what you would get from any other ride hailing service. You open it up, you know, you, you know, tap the button, you have to show your location and, and, you know, put in where you want to go. And then a vehicle comes and picks you up and takes you to that location. It's just that instead of having a driver in there, you know, it's just a, an, an automated Chevy Bolt, which may or may not have a steering wheel and pedals, depending on whether they get their waiver from, um, <laughs> from NHTSA. I, I still question though, like, how how are they going to make it attractive enough that the switching cost from even like people know all about Uber and the issues and they're they're you know there's even that fear factor sometimes with just weirdo Uber drivers versus you know the corporate issues how are they going to get past that switching cost you know with all that still people use Uber heavily uh, well. So the, the the thing is, you know, th- this is something I've been saying about ride hailing services for a while you know, and what you know the, the, the potential problem that companies like Uber and Lyft have is that for the consumer, for the rider, there is no switching cost. You know, when when you're on a social network, you know, if you're on Facebook and you want to switch to a different social network, it's of no value to you unless you can get all your friends to come along to that social network as well. You know, so unless you get all your friends to go with you to Snapchat or to, you know, to Google plus or whatever else it might be, if your friends that you want to communicate with aren't also on that platform, it's of no value to you. So there's a huge switching cost there, but to go from Uber to Lyft or from Lyft to you know, whatever GM calls their service or, you know uh, what, you know, to Zooks or anybody else, you don't have to rely on anybody else to follow you along. As long as you've got the app there, you open up the app, tap where you are. If there's a vehicle available, you use it and you go. There's no, there is no switching cost for the consumer. 
I yeah, I mean, I guess the real the only cost really is just like the pain of setting up a new app and putting all your info into it. And yeah, but I mean, that takes you two minutes. No, I know. I know. I, yeah, you, some of you, us are that you, lazy, you, Sam. <laughs> you, you, you log in, you know, put in your credit card number. You're done. Yeah. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Who could possibly steal it? We, we do it every day. I know. I mean, you know, everybody's got our credit card numbers anyway. So, yes, you know, that's true. You know, the, our, our, our social security numbers and our age and address and everything else are already all over the dark web anyway. So, you know, what's right. one more? What's putting it into one more app? Right. Yeah, that's true. And like, you know what? Have fun with the nothing that's in there. So, yeah. <laughs> so yeah i mean so the, i mean that and this is the this is the fundamental problem that the ride hailing companies have is that it's so it is actually easy to switch for for the consumers you know the the network effect for ride hailing doesn't come from the consumers it comes from the drivers which is one of the reasons why they want to move to driverless systems because you know for for the companies they rely on having a large network of drivers so that there's short wait times for the for the riders uh, you know, and so that people will, you know, will want to use the service. But, you know, if you have a fleet of automated vehicles and you have enough vehicles, you know, and the wait times are short enough, the, the switching cost to the consumer is nothing. Um, and so I, th I think that if the vehicles prove to be safe and it's priced right, then I think people will probably use it, you know, especially in a place like San Francisco, you know, in a place like San Francisco, I think it, you know, the adoption is people are more likely to adopt a new technology like that than say in Chicago or Detroit, you know, or, or maybe even Boston. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, where are they going to put all the cars though? It's not like they can even have them in a central place outside of San Francisco or, or within, uh, they're going to have to have them sort of distributed around the city and even driverless. It doesn't really solve the problem of, easing gridlock it just actually adds more well, cars yeah and 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 this is why they've been working on the the logistics back end um you know because you know idea you know both from addressing the the con the congestion problem but also just from a business standpoint you know from a business standpoint if you want to make money on a service like this you've got to maximize the utilization of the vehicles so a thing you don't want is you don't want deadheading miles you don't want these cars cruising around town empty um so you know, you need to have a system that optimizes the number of vehicles you've got out there, optimizes where they're located so that they're carrying passengers as much of the time as possible. And this is one of the things that, you know, like, for example, Ford, you look at Ford and, and what they're doing. This is one of the reasons why they're they're not just focusing on ride hailing. You know, they're they're looking at what are all the other things we can do with these vehicles so that we're constantly using them for something productive and making money off of them for every mile they drive. We don't want them just sitting around doing nothing. You know, it's like the airline model where, you know, when a when an airliner is sitting on the tarmac, you know, it's just costing the airline money. But it, when it's in the air flying, carrying passengers and cargo, that's when it's making money. And you need to do the same thing with these autonomous vehicles. You know, so that's why you see, you know, like, for example, Uber investing in things like Uber Eats and, um, you know, uh, you know, a package delivery and, and other things, because they want to be able to utilize the vehicles as to the maximum amount possible and get as much revenue out of it for every hour of the day. And um, this this is why, you know, I think, you know, what we're seeing right now from GM with the autonomous bolts is only the first step. I think that this, you know, the use of the bolt 
as the vehicle for this initial platform is I think is only an interim thing. I think what we're going to see probably within the next two years is they'll transition away from using the bolt to a vehicle that's been specifically designed for this. That's got flexibility to do different things and can, you know, can easily switch from carrying packages to carrying people to delivering food or, or whatever else it might be. Yeah. And like there are benefits to certain groups of the population right who just they they don't have access to mobility um you know the the elderly the disabled Mm -hmm. um you know people who just can't afford a car or whatever so like i do see the benefit i just like we are rushing to solve some problems and yet some of the other major problems are well it's almost like we're collectively kind of ignoring them <laughs> to, to a degree. And, well, that is what we do, isn't it? Yeah. In this country. Yeah, of course. But no, you're, you're right. I mean, there, it's, you know, it, it's a lot more to really address the problems. You know, it's going to be a lot more complicated than just putting autonomous ride hailing cars on the road. Um, you know, so you need to, you need to optimize the use of those vehicles. So they're not sitting around taking up space. They're not, you don't have empty vehicles driving around, but also, um, you know, you need to coordinate them with transit services and, you know, with a, a multimodal mobility system, you know, so that you can keep the, get the cost down and still make it profitable. Um, because, you know, the thing is, even right now, you know, for, for us, you know, to, to use, you know, a ride hailing service or a taxi, um, you know, the, the cost to us, you know, we, you know, we, we're, you know, middle class, you know, you know, we've got fairly decent income. We can afford it. But there's a lot of people, especially when you look at cities, you know, I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're really a lot of what we're trying to address is urban problems. And for a lot of the people that live in cities, you know, the incomes are are not enough to pay for using these kinds of services all the time. So it's got to be a, a lot more affordable than even an Uber or Lyft is today. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, th- there was a, a thing that came out last week, um, you know, I think from the Census Bureau, you know, and in um, in San Francisco now, um, if for a family of four with a, an income of less than one hundred and seventeen thousand dollars, you're now considered low income. Yeah, well, I mean, one hundred and seventeen thousand dollars a year is low income in San Francisco. In, in San Francisco, and it there's sure a lot is. of people yeah. who make a fraction of that in San Francisco. But, yeah, but there's this like San Francisco has possibly the largest gulf between uh, in 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 income inequality. Right, you've got all the tech, oh yeah, tech no, folks, absolutely, and and you've got then the sort of long term. I don't want to call them true San Franciscans, but I mean, like, like San Francisco 20 years ago was not what it is now. Like it's so- uh, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. But you know, the, the, the thing is, you know, I mean, if you look at any big city, you know, that's increasingly a problem. Oh yeah. Boston's the same way. Uh, so yeah. we're 40 miles outside of the city, 45, roughly. Um, prices here, like even for a house, right? Like a, a modest house is going to be, 350 400,000 like for a family home like mm-hmm. you know someplace nice not too nice but you know a couple thousand square feet maybe a garage you know whatever like the average home um middle class sort of suburbs whatever you go 10 minutes west of here i mean east of here and prices that's a couple hundred grand more like you're in the sixes sevens eights and like in the ring around Route 90, Route 95, 95, uh, you know, rings Boston. 
there's there's stupid things like 1300 square foot 50 year old houses for like a million bucks that basically is just there for the land <laughs> and when somebody buys it and they knock it down and they put something disgusting up uh you know so like yeah that income inequality thing is getting really really it's stretched really thin like i wonder what the breaking point is and i was actually talking about the the mobility thing um with my wife and kids on the the fourth actually um just how like if you don't have a car and you don't have enough income to own a car or whatever your circumstances are it is it is a huge pain to get around it takes a long time it's expensive it makes it harder for you to get to work on time and so like you you're stacking the deck against people who like least you can least afford the deck to be stacked you know like uh it, it, yes from from us there are two little cities here um we've got uh, the city that we live in and then the next city over there are about forty five thousand people so in this area there's a hundred thousand people roughly um to go from one side of our city to the other side of the next city over on the bus like i i don't even know how you'd work that out it would take you more than an hour <laughs> to go yeah you know and and that's that's a problem in detroit too i mean you know detroit because it's so spread out you know it's such a geographically large city with a comparatively small population for its size you know it, for anybody to get to a job is a real problem and this is one of the issues they're trying to deal with in detroit is how to make mobility affordable so that people can get to jobs and get to school and 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 you know wherever else they need to go um you know i mean at least in a place like san francisco it's fairly geographically compact um but it's still enormously expensive and you know just going to automated mobility services is not going to solve the problem unless you also address a lot of these other surrounding issues of how, you know, how you, you know, how you make it more affordable and and make these businesses sustainable, you know, because, you know, I mean, you know, you look today at the ride hailing services and they all lose a fortune. You know, they, they, you know, the the only reason they're as cheap as they are is because VCs that funded these things have been willing to sustain huge losses as they try to grow them right and that was my my point i was like those like uber and lyft and whatever like those rides are cheap and they're artificially cheap and what's going to happen like this is my concern still a lot of people can't afford them right and well especially too if you're unbanked you don't have a credit Mm -hmm. card you may have a smartphone but you know like you you, you've got like a track phone or something right yeah you get a prepaid phone you know right but uh that's that's not that's not going to be enough um so those artificially inexpensive rides while those investors at a certain point are going to get frustrated and just say uncle unless they can figure out how to make it affordable or or not affordable um profitable to me that says like at a certain point the prices are going to go up on stuff like uber and lyft um absolutely right so what does that happen before or after um the the sustainability of public infrastructure has been damaged to the point where uh either the compelling case to privatize it has been made and is that the end goal and that that's to me that's really chilling because i I think for some of these companies that that is in fact the goal although you know certainly i think at lyft at least you know one of the things been hearing from from lyft is that they do want to collaborate with you know with the local transit systems and with cities you know to try to try to make this more manageable and this is you know 
you know, again, you know, a, a number of companies, including Ford, you know, this is this is one of the things that Ford is doing. You know, the, the one of the companies that they bought in the last year is a company called Autonomic, um, you know, that built this transport, you know, what they call a transportation operating system. You know, and it's a it's a platform for cities to use to coordinate all these different services, you know, to try to get the right balance of mass transit and micro transit and, you know, individual ride hailing and, and all the other services to to work together, you know, to get the, the right, the optimum mix, you know, for a city so that you can, you know, try start to cut down on congestion, cut down on the need for parking cut down, you know, and make it all more affordable and accessible to everyone, you know, including low income, but also the elderly and the young and, and, you know, whoever can't drive uh, for whatever reason, um, you know, so they're, you know, their companies are looking at how to do this. They're trying to find this, trying to figure out the solutions. Nobody, you know, has figured out a, a way to do it yet and make money. You know, and that's that's why everybody's doing all kinds of different experiments, you know, and we're seeing, you know, even before we get automated vehicles, you know, that's why you're seeing these experiments with things like subscription services, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what is the price elasticity? How much are people going to be willing or afford to pay, you know, to get, you know, access, you know, at various kinds of levels to transportation? Yeah, I still I still like I would love to be able to take my bike. I'd love to have yeah. like a, a two mile. Well, and that's, that's part of it too. I mean, you know, things like bikes and scooters, yeah. you know, trying to, trying to get all this stuff into the mix as well. You know, I mean, you've got these, these dockless scooters now in, in a bunch of cities, you know, and how do you manage that? You know, uh, because these things need charging, you know, and, you know, the idea of being able to pick up a scooter and ride to where you need to go and just leave it, you know, and, and not have to go searching for a dock somewhere is great until, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they're all stacked up on some street corner. <laughs> yeah, seems you know, like it's and, not playing and none out of them well. are charged. Yeah. You know, um, so, you know, it's it's not nearly as simple as just going out and dropping off a bunch of scooters and, you know, putting an app on the app store and, and say, here, have at it. You know, now, you know, now these companies are paying people, you know, the, the, the next, you know, job category is just driving around, picking up scooters and charging them, you know, and, you know, I think uh, like bird or lime scooter or somebody, you know, they're paying people like 15 bucks a pop to pick up the scooters and charge them and put them back and back in service again. And so, you know, people are driving around, you know, picking up a dozen scooters in the back of a van and going and charging them somewhere. Um, you know, and, and so, I mean, we have to figure out all these logistics and it's just it's it's not a trivial problem. That's great. They're crowdsourcing their own fleet maintenance. Yeah. That's. Oh, dear God. But that's, you know, and that's, <laughs> you know, as you get into automated vehicles, that's something that, that you're not going to be able to do. You're not going to be able to crowdsource stuff like that because those things require some very delicate maintenance, you know, and making sure that the sensors are calibrated and everything. So that, you know, there's a bunch of things that don't get talked about a lot that actually are going to add a lot of cost to the service. So even as you eliminate the cost of the drivers, there's a whole bunch of new costs associated with these services. And, you know, so it's not, you know, again, you know, even if Uber were able to, you know, replace all of their drivers with autonomous vehicles tomorrow, there's no guarantee that they're going to make money anytime soon. Well, and with all of this, too, it's it's not an either or solution. It's it's always going to be more of a yes and. Yeah, kind it's of a thing. mix of a whole bunch of things. Um. So, yeah. All right. 
Wow. We, we went a little deeper on that than I thought we were. <laughs> um, all right. Where do we, where do we want to go all next? Right, uh, so uh, Nissan and Daimler canceled their plans to build a luxury compact so car I thought together. They, like that, so that's not the one they're already building together now. N- no, no. So currently they have the, the QX60 or the QX30 and the, uh, the GLA. Uh, Infinity QX30 and the, the Mercedes GLA are on the same platform. You know, the, the, the Infinity is just a rebodied GLA. Uh, so there's that. Um, and then they're, you know, they've got some uh, joint ventures, you know, where they're doing some engines together. Um, I think uh, Infinity is building some engines for Mercedes and Merce- and they're using some Mercedes diesel engines in some markets. Um, and then they have a plant in Mexico, which is where Infinity recently started building the new QX50. Uh, and that plant was also supp- supposed to build a compact car, which I, I would assume would, would have been a replacement for the Mercedes C-Class, the current C-Class. Um, and Infinity was going to do a version of that as well. But so that, that program has been killed apparently because uh, Infinity decided, okay, you know, with sales of the cars going down, you know, even for even in the premium market, it's not worth it for them to do that car. Mercedes will, no doubt, you know, continue with the C class, but uh, the joint program is is apparently finished. But you know, that's just another sign of the shift from cars to utilities. So they're still going to, the Mercedes and, and Nissan are still, or Daimler and Nissan are still working together, just not on that particular program. Okay. Um, they, they continue apace. Yes. And then uh, Toyota's oh, got yeah. a new Supra. The Supra. <laughs> yeah. In NASCAR. Uh, Everybody yeah. said it's ugly. I, I, it's a NASCAR race car. It's a spec car. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> except for the front fascia, they, they, you know, all of them look the same, you know, whether it's a Toyota Supra, you know, or the current Camry or the so-called Mustang or the Camaro, you know, they all look the same, you know, it's, it's NASCAR. Um, <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> putting that fascia, you know, on the stock NASCAR body, you know, it just, it looks silly. Uh, but we will see the real Supra next week at Goodwood uh, in some form or another, the, the production version. Uh, whether it'll still have some, some camo wrap on it or not is unclear, but they are going to run it at Goodwood Festival of Speed next week. All I got is better have a 2JZ in it. Um, <laughs> it's, it will not, but it better. It will, yeah, <laughs> it will. It will apparently be an inline six. Oh, but will it? Know. I didn't. Yeah. I was not well, aware. Well, of because that. It, it's yeah. The the Supra is the the joint development they did with BMW, so it's the new Z4 and the Supra oh, uh, are going to have the same platform, yeah, same powertrain. Four. I just didn't know that they were going to use. Maybe I. Maybe so I it'll be that. like the the N55 or whatever they're up to now. Um, the, you know, the, the, right. the BMW inline six, so it should be an inline six cylinder engine, just not a Toyota built inline six cylinder, okay. which is fine. I, I mean, it, it, look, I, Toyota is making some, some cars that are very good to drive lately, even the Camry yeah. and the, you know, like if they're partnering with BMW on a coupe, but I don't even care if it's ugly at this point. Well, you know, the the interesting thing is, you know, the reports on this thing are, you know, that while they use the same hardware, you know, they're going to have, they're each, the the Z4 and the Supra are supposed to have, you know, quite different feel. And the, um, the, uh, the, the BMW, I guess is supposed to be a little softer, you know, it's going to be a convertible, whereas the Supra is going to be a coupe, Um, you know, be a little, little softer, you know, a little more of a cruiser, whereas the Supra is supposed to be more of a hardcore sports car. 
that may, uh, honestly, which will be interesting. That, but that makes sense when you think about it, because I, I bet that Toyota can better absorb the low volume, lower profit, hard top sports car mm-hmm. than BMW can, which with a convertible, some more of a grand tourer. Yeah, it seems like they're they're saying, yeah, OK, like we're, we're going to get our profit out of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and and like those are the BMWs that go for for big money. Like those are the ones that that you know people generally buy for a very high inflated prices. Exactly. Uh, I mean, like yeah, I so I, I can see that from a sort of armchair uh, analyst perspective. Uh, what, what'll, what'll be interesting to see you know, i mean you know so we're going to have the supra replacing the camry bodywork in uh in nascar um but it'll be interesting to see where else they raise the supra um because you know right now lexus runs the the rc in gt3 classes you know in in europe and here in imsa you know in the gtd class which is basically gt3 specs um I'll be curious, you know, and they just launched that one last year. So it's in its second DRC GT3 is in its second year of competition. I'll be, I'll be curious to see if they switch from that car over to a super based car, uh, in the next year or two and, you know, to replace that. Yeah. I mean, more coupes are, that's always better. So yay. Oh, absolutely. Yay. Um, Especially when they're rear wheel drive and have inline six cylinder engines. Yeah. And well, turbocharged inline six too, if it's an N55, yeah. right? Like I, yeah, I mean, even even with just the naturally aspirated BMW straight six, like that's a that, that would be a good time. I don't know if they, I don't even, I don't know if they even make any more naturally aspirated engines. I don't I think, think they're they all do. turbos now. Yeah, I think they are. At least in North America, they're all turbos. That's I, true. I'm not Else, sure if they're elsewhere, still I'm them. sure they have like a variety of engines. In. Yeah. Um, all right. um, and then uh, last uh, last item of the the week uh, is the Honda Mean Mower. Uh, did you ever watch King of the Hill when it was on? Uh yeah. I I saw a few episodes. I didn't I did, was not Did you ever see the, the the lawnmower racing episode? No, but I mean lawnmower racing is a thing. It's like yep, yep, apparently it is a real thing. Yeah. And uh so uh I guess a few years back, Honda UK uh built uh, a lawn tractor, you know, they called it the mean mower, and that one had a one liter V twin motorcycle engine in it. And they got a, a Guinness world record, you know, did 117 mile an hour, two way average with a lawnmower. Um, and, uh, <laughs> then in 2015, uh, a Norwegian team put together a, a Viking lawnmower with, uh, lawnmower. with, with a GM LS crate engine in it with 414 horsepower <laughs> and did, did 134 miles an hour with that one. So Honda UK is back again with mean mower version two, which uh, now has the one liter four cylinder from the Fireblade motorcycle. And uh, they're targeting 150 miles an hour with this thing. I, you know what? Like, sure. Can it, it has to actually be able to mow the lawn at that speed. It, it can, it can. So on the original mean mower, um, what they did, you know, instead of doing a power takeoff, like a typical lawn tractor does, you know, to drive the blades, they actually, they added a couple of um, small electric motors in the, under the, the mower deck to drive the, the mowers, uh, the, the, the blades, and rather than blades, it had steel cables. Um, so they, they had an electric drive uh, mower deck, and I guess they're using that again this time. You know, but uh, the, the original mean mower had 109 horsepower. This one has 190 horsepower. 
<laughs> and so they're they're targeting 150 miles an hour with this thing. Good, good for them. Good. I mean, why the hell not? You, we need more levity in our lives. Yes, I, absolutely. I think that's that's fun. It's like the guys who put like a 426 Hemi in a snowblower. Yeah, it's apparently a thing. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I was just uh, I was listening to another podcast, uh, Marshall Pruitt's podcast uh, this week in sports cars, and his co-host Graham Goodwin was talking about in one of the the national uh, GT series in in Europe. I think it might have been in the UK. Somebody's running a Honda S two thousand with a GM uh, LS V eight in it, which you know. In that little car, does not doesn't sound bad yet. That sounds like yeah. a really good combo to me. Perfect, yeah. It's I mean that's it's probably too much power for that car if there could be such a thing. But I mean, also super entertaining. Well, it's a it's a race car. It's not a street car, so yeah. But still, yeah. I mean, like that's a I don't know. That's enough power to make an S two thousand evil. Because <laughs> they, they have their moments, you know, so. Well, I mean, you know, people have built uh, Miatas with LS engines in them and, you know, small blocks. And uh, um, they used to do, you know, there there have been a bunch of like uh, old Pontiac Solstices that have been converted with yeah, that's LS right. the, V8s the, in them. The mallet kit. And, then the, yeah, and the, the LS like actually fits in quite well in those cars. Well, and that's that's the that's the beautiful thing about the, the small block is, you know, even though it's a fairly large displacement, it's a remarkably compact package and it's it's a relatively light lightweight engine. It is. You know, yeah. uh, you know, a, a fully a fully dressed aluminum block LS, you know, weighs only about 400 pounds. Yeah. You know, that's with alternator and, you know, all the other uh, accoutrements that go on the engine. So it's not just a bare block engine, you know. So, you know, if you can, you know, and, and it'll fit, you know, because because it's a push rod engine, it's comparatively narrow. I mean, if you compare it to an overhead cam engine like the, the Ford Coyote V8, you know, I mean, that's a pretty wide engine. The the uh, small block is really narrow, Um considering what it can do and it's it's not that tall so it'll fit into a into a shockingly shocking number of different spaces yeah i i mean and all all push rod engines are like i was i remember the first time i saw the um the push rod like the 2.8 liter gmv6 the 60 degree mm -hmm. v6 that thing's tiny yeah tiny 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 and it's, it's on the tall side but yeah it is it is really narrow yeah uh, and it's the same thing, you know, that's I think that's one of the reasons why the small block has a got became really ubiquitous. But it's also so well loved because it is just really it's a brilliant piece of packaging. Yeah, you can stuff it into almost anything. Yeah, as we've so seen, we'll, we'll be we'll be, we'll be uh, keeping tabs on the the mean mower too uh, to see if it actually does manage to hit its 150 mile an hour target. I mean, that's an angry little V twin. That's uh, good. Well, that's a four cylinder. Oh, is it a four? I thought it the was... original one was a V twin. The new one, the the version two, is a four cylinder. Oh, oh, oh! I see. So it's an inline four, um, pe uh, mounted sideways across the the front of the chassis. Um, and can you imagine mowing your lawn with that thing? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'd be done in a minute. <laughs> I only have a quarter acre. It takes me it takes me a while walking behind the push mower, but yeah, I'll take it. All right.
So we, we also had uh, a question on Facebook from a listener from uh, Peter from B- Bavaria. Uh, and he says, he asked, uh, so cars do amaze me. Example, the progress in electrification and autom- automation. But what amazes me m- most are car people who pay stupendous money for old cars. Example, $50,000 for a totally rotten pre-A three, Porsche 356. 150K for a good uh, Mercedes 190 SL. 20K for a 40-year-old Datsun pickup. Uh, 1.2 million for a Toyota GT and nothing wrong with that. And why are people willing to pay these irrational sums for the revival of past feelings, which fade away as soon as they drive the first miles on today's roads, a seven year old, any brand compact car is safer, uh, faster, safer, more spacious, more durable, more economical for like $7,000. I, he answered his own question though. Like, uh, it, have you have you ever considered a motorcycle? Do you know why people still ride motorcycles? Because they're dangerous, um, and we have better better options. But there is a visceral experience, and and yes, I think some of it is nostalgia. Um, but I, I don't know what's what's your take on it. Well, you know, I think buying you know buying anything other than you know a used you know a, a you know, decently cared for used car is a completely irrational decision anyway. You know, I mean, paying paying eighty thousand dollars for you know a Ford Expedition, you know, or you know a hundred grand, you know, for any number of cars is totally irrational. There, that's true. You know, it, it makes it makes no sense. You there, know, there's definitely like the stupidity in uh, say the the valuation of air cooled uh, Porsches. Like that's dumb. That, that that said, you know, um, you know, when you're talking about, you know, vintage cars, you know, it's 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 not about, you know, the inherent value of the car or, you know, whether the car is actually any good. And it's, it's not even so much about, um, you know, the nostalgia. I mean, you know, I think anybody that's that's going to pay, you know, 20 grand for a 40 year old Datsun pickup is not going to expect it to, to drive particularly well. Uh, in fact, why anyone would pay 20 grand for a 40 year old Datsun pickup is a complete mystery. Well, to so, me. so, but, but, okay. So here's, but, here's the, here's the thing though. Um, because we do talk about this sometimes on the, the Swedish bricks list serve that's dedicated to a bunch of curmudgeons who still love rear wheel drive Volvos and prices of stuff like a 240 say have been steadily climbing now. And while everybody knows the 740 and 940 are actually better rear wheel drive cars, the 240 has achieved its sort of niche cult status, especially the 240 mm-hmm. wagon. And you can't really buy a good one for like, I would expect to be paying at least five grand and searching kind of high and low to stay in that price range for a good 240 wagon. And you definitely can't put a basket case back together for less than that. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, just finding all the parts, you know, yeah. it's going to cost you that much. And body work yeah. and paint. And, and you like, know, but yeah. I mean, something like 1.2 million for, you know, for a Toyota 2000 GT or, well, or did we talk last week about the, the Ferrari GTO that's going up for auction? No, but uh, I mean, you know, you know, they're expecting that one to, to fetch $45 million. Yeah, that's dumb. That's like, you know, that's, inv- but, but that's an investment but, grade car. Right. I mean, th- those kinds of cars, you know, or even even a rotted out, you know, old 356, you know, those people buy those, you know, they see it as a work of art. 
You know, it's it's as much a sculpture as it is a car, uh, especially things like the 2000 GT or a GTO or, you know, any any number of other yeah. you know, cars. I mean, like one They're, million for a 2000 GT doesn't strike me as out of range. Yeah. I mean, only a few hundred of those were ever built in the first place. You know, and I mean, it is such a gorgeous car, you know, and the reality is most people that are going to buy those cars and spend that kind of money on them are never actually going to drive right. them anyway. And they're not they're they're not buying them to drive them. Most of them are going to most of them end up being garage queens. That's the biggest shame to me, because yeah, like it's, e- even that forty five million dollar Ferrari, it has no value unless you actually get to hear that thing run and move under its own power like that's. Mm-hmm that's where the like the love of the thing comes from it's doing what it's meant to do you know like you wouldn't and, you, you know, wouldn't buy a thoroughbred racehorse and just like put him in your living room <laughs> right yeah <laughs> well, it depends um, <laughs> depends how much you like the smell of horse shit <laughs> or uh, you get him stuffed right that's essentially what they become they become automotive taxidermy that's, exactly I mean, eh. yeah and that that's why you know when it comes to these you know these extraordinarily expensive, you know, classic cars, you know, I, I appreciate those collectors that buy them and actually drive them, you know, rather than just, you know, get a warehouse and, you know, create their own private little museum. You know, that's why, that's why, you know, guys like Jim Glickenhaus, you know, I, you know, I like, you know, everything he owns, he drives, you know, and he has an extraordinary collection of cars that are not just rare, but they, you know, mo- many, most of most cases are one-offs. You know, uh, you know, he's got his Ferrari P45 that you know that he had built, had Pininfarina build for him on an Enzo chassis. You know, it is the only one of its kind, and he, you know, he's put like thirty thousand miles on the thing since he had it built ten years ago. Right, but but. He, so- He's fantastically wealthy, though, and that's what you know. right. Well, yes. I mean, you, you're going to be fantastically wealthy to buy a million dollar Toyota 2000 GT as well. I suppose, but like, when you have that kind of wealth, you can afford to not give a crap about what happens to yeah. the fantastically expensive, like you know, virtually one of a kind car. I I couldn't buy a I could buy a 308, but I wouldn't want to drive it because I couldn't afford to maintain it. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, even even lesser cars, you know, like my Miata. You know, I have a 28 year old Miata, a 1990 Miata. You know, I know that it's not nearly as capable as a brand new Miata, you know, or you know, even a five year old Miata for that matter. But it is a lot of fun. To, you know, I, I don't I don't I don't I don't own it and I don't drive it because of its ultimate capabilities. I know that my wife's, you know, 2017 Honda Civic is probably quicker. You know, it's certainly safer, um, you know, more fuel efficient, uh, you know, a lot more, a lot more spacious inside, but I have fun with it, you know, and, and I think, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, especially the, the lower cost cars, you know, not the, the crazy expensive ones, um, but the lower cost ones, you know, it, it, even though they are not as good, you know, from a purely objective standpoint, you know, they, they actually are a lot of fun to drive. And, you know, um, they, I, I don't think that those feelings actually fade away as quick as you might think, you know, that my friend that I bought the Miata from, you know, he sold the Miata to me because he bought a, a 1969, uh, Chevy C10 pickup, you know, and you know, a 1969 Chevy pickup truck, you know, is <laughs> certainly not <laughs> nowhere near as capable, you know, as a new Silverado or an F-150, 
but you know, he, he enjoys driving that just, just to drive it around. It's, it's a, it's a different kind of experience. I, I have to admit this quietly, but I actually sometimes enjoy driving the crown Victoria just because it's, it's its own kind of thing. <laughs> you yeah. Know? No, uh, that's a totally legitimate feeling. Yeah. All right. Now I feel I, I, but of course those cars didn't cost irrational sums of money. So, yeah, but I like the weird stuff. Like that's, I'll, I'll send my wife yeah. links to like just weird old cars and like it, most of them are completely impractical. So we're not going to get them, but I'm just like, here's what I'd, I would love a Fiat X one nine. Not, not yeah. going to happen. Although you can get them cheap, but not, not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if you think your Volvos were tough to work on, try the X one nine. I mean, the X one nine is just so cool. Uh, it is. And you could get the you could get the Bretoni X19 all the way up to 19. If you can find one that hasn't completely decomposed to iron oxide yet. Well, the, the, I think the later ones were better, which it turns out were a Malcolm Brooklyn thing. After Fiat left the US market, um he imported them as Bretoni X19s until right. 1988. Bertone, Bertone always built them for right. Fiat. Right. But they they set up the sales channel and it's funny like I wonder how much of that was a prototype for the Yugo US sales channel and it's funny that the the X19 and the Yugo were both derivatives of the Fiat 128. <laughs> like the, yeah. the X19 used the 128 front cradle in the back, just like a Fiero. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. It's, it's all, yeah. It's like weird cars. I like Fieros too. We <laughs> passed one the other day. <laughs> so the, basically the answer is there's nothing rational about it. We just do it for the hell of it because we love the cars. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with loving cars. I mean, that's why we're all yeah. here, right? Like, that's right. It's, it's a good time. Uh, uh, spend spend the money. Also, you can get a lot more fun out of a. Like you can get so if you say twenty thousand dollars, that doesn't buy a whole lot of new car, but it sure buys a lot of older fun car, right? Yeah, and I spent a lot less than twenty grand on my Miata. Yeah, so there you go. All right, I think it's time to go for another week. Yeah, um, as we all listen to the message being left on my answering <laughs> machine. <laughs> uh, at least work from home Fridays are great. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Um, all right. Well, thanks for listening. Keep sending us your thoughts, and uh, we'll see everyone again next week. All right. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.